The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we are grateful for the chance to gather here and sit beneath your word. You've created this time for us, and weekly we come and enjoy it as you open up your scriptures and you teach by your spirit. So thank you, and then please do that again. Do it this morning here. Open up this passage here in front of us and bring the truth out from it that we all together and each one of us individually needs to hear. There will be major points and countless minor points, and what we pray is that you, Master Teacher, would press each one home in the right way to the right person in the right time. Grow us up, mature us, give us hope, perhaps convict, perhaps shine a light and illuminate and encourage, do your work, Lord, that's our hope. Teach, and with this passage, which is so tricky and challenging, will you teach in a way that is clear, heavy, but not crushing? Lord, make this hard truth clear, and also make the hope that is here shine brightly. Make us a people who are wise and careful, sober-minded, and always rejoicing. Build that kind of church this morning from this passage we ask, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. When the world seems particularly full of animosity and conflict, and now sure seems like one of those times, in times like that, there are a lot of people around the world that just long for peace, some sort of rest. And in that context, there are a bunch of well-known Bible phrases and passages that gain a lot of traction in our minds and our hearts. Those of us who are Christians, and maybe just people who are familiar with generally the Christian ideas. Jesus, the Prince of Peace. That sounds good. Jesus, the one that Luke's Gospel says, came to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus, who comes bringing mercy and grace, who comes in compassion, who is full of love. Those truths and others like them, they they strongly resonate with us, especially as we look at a world that's full of discord. However, that's only half the truth. The other half of the truth that we must always remember is that the Prince of Peace is Almighty God. Perfectly righteous and just, holy, holy, holy. And the righteous and just and holy way that he brings about peace on earth, that he makes for there to be goodwill to some men and women and children here. That way that he does that, that beautiful and and awesome and amazing, as it is, it is simultaneously uncompromisingly demanding. The way is narrow and hard, and a lot of people won't like that. Which brings us to our passage today at the end of Matthew chapter 10. This chapter has been the second lengthy speech of Jesus here in this gospel. The first one was obviously the Sermon on the Mount. 
And in that sermon, Jesus emphasized what the the characteristics of a disciple are, what, what we're like as his followers. And the second one then has been more leaning into what it means as to follow him into his mission as fishers of men. He began with a call to compassion and prayer and then gave instructions to his set-aside 12 apostles, which were initially, for them, right there in that very first little ministry endeavor they were undertaking, but they expand to be about all of their work and all of the disciples over all of time, all of us into the future, called to labor in the harvest and told how to expect and how to deal with the persecution that would follow. Wisely, vulnerably, and fearlessly, as we saw last week. And now Jesus concludes, really kind of summarizes and wraps up this this whole speech here with some more hard words for us about where our allegiance must lie amidst the division that he causes in the world. That's what we're going to look at today at the end of Matthew 10. So I'm going to read the passage beginning in verse 34 all the way to the end of the chapter. And then I'll draw out three observations from it. Matthew 10, beginning in verse 34, he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Matthew 10. So three observations. Here's the first. Jesus' mission is to divide all the world along the line of God's gospel. Jesus' mission is to divide all the world on one line. The line of God's gospel of grace which is not the recipe about what we are supposed to do. People misunderstand gospel all the time. You hear it all the time. The gospel is not God telling us what we are supposed to do. It is him telling us what he has already done. It is good news about what God did in Jesus. And that message is the dividing line that Jesus means to drop in the world, to separate Verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth, which might send us for a loop right away, as it probably did them, because of all those verses and all those ideas that I just mentioned, we, you know, Prince of Peace, that, that idea is very dominant and important, so it, we might hear that and say, okay, you're going somewhere with this, because that, that's not what I was expecting, what do you mean? 
And he does mean something. We need to keep listening and thinking about this. And at first, as we do, it gets more confusing. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Which sounds, wow, like Jesus is about something violent. That sounds just like Islam. That sounds just like many other religions in the world that come with the sword. Is that what he means? Actually, no, not at all. That's not at all what he means. He does not mean that he himself or we as people actually are going to be carrying swords, neither literally nor metaphorically. He's talking about there's going to be something that we not inflict but are afflicted by. It's inflicted upon us. Remember, this is his summary. This is the conclusion of the sermon in which he's been talking about how we, his people, he himself and we as people, approach the world in compassion and move through it sheep-like. Others are the violent wolves that attack so we're the recipients of something, recipients of the sword. So we, we suffer under it, this opposition that comes at us. And yet he's quite clear that he's the one who brings it. He causes the sword to occur. That's what he says. So what does he mean? How's that? Well, it's like how we might say, think about this for a second, weddings come to bring a sword to families. A wedding comes, and it sets a mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. How's that? What are you talking about? Well, it creates a conflict because these two women, they they might have been perfectly cordial and, and quite nice to each other in another setting, but something happened here, and this little boy that mom birthed and fed and clothed and raised and taught grew up in her house under her wing, suddenly says to her mom... You're second. Mom, Dad, you are no longer my first priority. You are relegated to second place status. And Mom's angry about that. This newcomer girl just stole my son. And she's angry and dislikes this intruder and begins to attack her. Weddings bring warfare. Of course you're not supposed to. Of course not always. Most of the time, weddings don't bring this. What are you talking about? Well, what I'm talking about is we've all seen this where you know you're looking at the people involved. You know who they are. You know what they're like. You, you, you can watch dating leading, I think, to engagement. And oh boy, if a wedding comes, there's going to be trouble. You've been there. You've seen that happen because you look at this and you know the people involved and you know their attitudes. Jesus knows the people involved and he knows their attitudes here on earth in this fallen world. And he knows that when he shows up on earth, creating a new kingdom with new relationships and a new set of allegiances, that many people will not have it. Will not. Weddings, like the coming of Jesus, should be wonderful, but sometimes the people involved in their attitudes mean that it will not be. Jesus says, I come as light shining into the darkness. It's in John's gospel. But people of the world love the darkness because their deeds are evil. So they will not like the light. Eventually, 
He's going to come and he's going to put an end to all that. He's going to put an end to deeds of evil and all darkness as he rids the world of evil and casts out of it all sinful people in terrible final judgment. We've talked about this before. We, have to, we must say it clearly but very carefully because it is so, so sobering. Terrible final judgment is real and it is coming, but it is not yet. And until then, before then, up until then, all of this time right now, Jesus realizes, I know who people are, I know what the attitudes involved are, and when I come, I'm going to create conflict, just like the prophet Micah prophesied. He's come to make happen, to bring about verses 35 and 36. You might have a footnote in your Bible that, that points out those verses are actually a quote from Micah. Chapter 7, verse 6. You might want to look back at that sometime and look at that whole, the whole book. The whole chapter is really interesting in its messianic flow. But in short, Micah foresees a day, prophesies about a day when, shocking, amazing, ungodly family members will attack righteous loved ones. They'll pick up a sword, so to speak, and do you harm. And it's not actually a, a literal sword, physical harm, that sort of indicates division and discord. There's some sort of opposition, conflict, maybe not physical, but maybe a verbal insult or a loss of job or some sort of social canceling, something or another, some sort of opposition. Let me be clear, Jesus says. That day that Micah talked about is now. I came to bring that day, the day of discord. This is, in fact, what he already said in verses 21 and 22. Thoughts a few weeks ago, even mentioning family members, exact same thing. But more than this just being a repeat summary here at the end, he's making something else clear that this is intentional on God's part. Micah prophesied it. Jesus came to do it. He talks about came to bring, came to set a non-believing son against his believing father. The animosity, in other words, is not just accidental byproduct. And it can't be avoided if we're just so very, very careful and, and wise and astute and you know, wise as serpents. If we just do it just right, we can avoid all this. That's not possible because Jesus is the problem. And he's here. He creates this division, not because he loves division or animosity, far from it, but he intends to make clear something important, that there is one single way to be forgiven and one single way to be saved from sin. Faith in him alone. And if the world was less trapped in sin than it is, and if sin was less wicked than it was, and if people less disliked God and his commandments and were less committed to living their own ways and following after their own desires and feelings, then Jesus could exist with that message just fine here in the world. But of course, that's not the case. Given who people are, given what the human heart is, given what sin actually is, he knows when I come and I bring living water into the world, living water into the world, I'm dumping it into a cauldron of boiling oil. And as it touches the surface, it'll explode. 
There's no other way, given what living water is and given what the world is. I come to create trouble. So this is a paradigm adjustment. We today are the oddity. We prayed for, if you just heard as, as Stephen prayed through different countries and regions of the world, those are places elsewhere. We prayed for the troubles that they face elsewhere. And, and it's easy to hear that and think, like, this is normal. That elsewhere is, is the, the oddity. That's going to get sorted out and fixed. It isn't. Water dumped into oil. We're the oddity. We've got a moment here in time when, when this country is still living off of its Christian heritage. This country is, in many ways, still receptive. Much of the rest of the world, though, shows us what the truth is. And violence against Christians, the persecution that Jesus is talking about here in such, such stark clarity, it's the way it is. So if, if we think, as, as certainly his disciples did there, it's his disciples, I mean, you've got to see where he is in the story here. They thought, there might be a little bit of trouble here, and Jesus is then going to sit on the throne and sort everything out. And politically and economically and militarily, we will be fine. And his answer is, no, actually no. I'm going to drop a dividing line in the world, and it's going to fall on us like a sword. Be aware. Even some of those closest to us will strongly disagree with resolve. Won't like it. Will oppose us. There it is. That takes us to the second point. Jesus demands our supreme allegiance in the midst of that. Jesus demands our supreme allegiance and promises that that is how we find true life. Jesus demands our supreme allegiance right in the midst of all that that he just talked about and Underline this, underline this, write this in bold, and promises that that is how we find true life. Verse 37 obviously picks up on these family relationships that you're just mentioning. And having just heard, of course, the natural response would be having just heard about this conflict, maybe begin to experience the conflict within family lines, it, there would be a natural response that would rise up in us that would say that family is so important, especially back then, but always, family relationships are so important. So I've got to figure out how to get along with these loved ones. I, I cannot bear the idea of being separated from them, let alone at odds with them. So whatever it is that's stressing this relationship between my son or my father, or my, my daughter, or my mother, whatever it is that's stressing this, I've got to downplay that. I've got to remove it. I've got to set it aside because I need to get along with these people. So let's not make such a big deal of this, guys. Yeah, potato, potato. I'm a Christian, uh, you know. 
And Jesus makes an astonishing claim. Astonishing. I mean, today it's astonishing. It would have been just shocking back then. They live in a culture where family is everything. For most children, whatever your father thinks is what you think. You didn't even bother thinking about it. Whatever dad thinks is what we think. The authority and, and the, the, the unity of the, the responsibility to the family is, is everything. And Jesus says, I'm more important than your immediate family. I'm more important and must be regarded as more important than any other human relationship. That is amazing. Who can say that? No right-minded human being can say, I'm more important than your family. Jesus says that. Whoever loves father or mother more than me, whoever loves son or daughter more than me, is not worthy of me. Has no part in me. I will not accept. I'm first, he says. I'm your supreme allegiance or you don't have me at all. You recall the man who said, first let me bury my father and then I'll come. And Jesus said, don't bother. Nope. First or not at all. I was a baseball player growing up and I, I cannot help getting, getting the analogy out of my head of fastball high and tight. I mean, if you're a baseball player, you know what that means. It's like that's, that's the pitcher's warning. Get off the plate. The fastball that comes right here. Back up. Jesus, high heat. First or not at all. First, not just above family members, but if them, then every other human relationship too. And in fact, first above all other human endeavors and activities and aspirations of any sort. Verse 38, you're actually called, the only one who can come after me, you're first called to follow him after laying aside all your own preferred life, all your former life, set aside, marginalized, set off as Christ has given first place. And he calls us to this very dramatically. Anyone who would be a disciple of Jesus, this is not just those who want to be super-duper disciples. If you want to be a disciple at all, if you want to be worthy of him at all, That's only the person who takes up his cross, takes up her cross and follows him. This is the first mention of the cross in Matthew's gospel, and it is hard. Today, sometimes you'll hear somebody saying, well, that's just my cross to bear. And what they mean is this is something tough I've got to deal with. Maybe it's a physical malady or a difficult relationship or a hard job or something. That's just my cross to bear to to endure and kind of make it through. That's not what Jesus is talking about. In his time and day, anybody carrying a cross is a dead man walking. The only reason you carry a cross is that you're a convicted criminal on your way to your imminent execution, carrying the implement of your execution. A dead man walking. To carry your cross is to die. What Jesus is saying here is if you want any part with me, if you want me to embrace you, then say goodbye to your life and die to yourself and then come follow me. 
That alone is the kind of person I accept. The one who's sold out, who makes me supreme. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor during the time of the Nazis, famously wrote, you've probably heard this. He wrote a book, and in the book, probably the best-known line that he wrote in there is, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's Bonhoeffer in Nazi Germany. That's his perspective on what it means to follow Jesus. The call is come and die. Take up your cross and follow me. That's the only person who's following me is the one who's carrying a cross. This is so hard. I mean, the atmosphere in the room right now is pretty, pretty still, either because everybody's asleep or everybody's in shock. I'm not sure which. But it is so hard. I, I think it is, if you sit and you consider this for just a second, it is breathtaking. What runs out of your hands when he demands it? He, he doesn't demand just you know, the, the better part of your life. 10% of your, no, 20, 30, 80%, no, everything. Put it all on the table. What do you got? Send it all in. Come and die. Here at the end of this call to follow Christ into ministry, at the end of this call to make him and his kingdom and his gospel of grace clear, he underlines what that will mean after talking about how people will resist and, and it will be difficult and hard. At the end he says, but when we get right down to it, friends, he's talking to the church, friends, when we get right down to it, I'm telling you, come and die. Or don't bother at all. So demanding. Who can embrace this? Do you? He's not talking to people, he's talking to you. What might it look like for you to die to self, to put what you are on the table and say, there, hands off, it's yours? Maybe you could look in one of two places. I tend to find, for me, I should look at the parts of my life that are frustrations to me. Maybe you'd look there. The parts of life where I kind of say, this should be, it would be better if this was, if only I could make it like that. Maybe you look at those places and right there what you find is uh, that's the spot where my frustration is because my will is and it's going, what I need to do is say, let go. It's not mine to direct. The frustration might alert me as to where my hand is on the wheel and the wheel's turning against my will. Let go of the wheel. The one who dies to self is saying, I'm not in charge. I don't have the right to direct my life anymore. I don't have the right to call my shots for me. Maybe the frustrations alert you. On the other hand, perhaps it's better for you to look at 
the pleasures and enjoyments and delights of life and maybe things are going well, they're not frustrating, they're going well, and those are the things that stand in the way of you saying, here, I don't want to put that on the table, that's going awesome. I'm not going to give up this. And the pleasures and blessings and delights are the places where you need to look and say, is that surrendered also? Have I even raised the question yet of what would this look like under the lordship of Jesus? Maybe look at your frustrations, maybe look at your blessings, but either way, something there I think is worth looking at. Ask yourself, I, I hear the, the high and tight fastball here and it's challenging. What would it look like for me, for you to step further into full allegiance and to, to drop the self-rivalry, to let go of the self-determining bent that is in natural in all of us? Die to self. That does not mean carefully... That does not mean that if that was true of me, I would do the most radical, crazy, out there thing that I could possibly imagine. Maybe not. It might be that you keep doing the very same things you're already doing, but you do it in a way that's more open-handed and more sensitive to God's leading. Maybe taking that step that you know you should take but don't want to. I, I don't know what it would mean for you. It doesn't mean something extreme always. You've got to sort this through for you. You've you got to look at you. There aren't a lot of details here. Take up your cross and follow me. Kind of general, yet kind of clear. This is hard, and it's demanding, and some will, of course, say, nope, not doing that. And when a person says that, you're stepping away from Jesus and heading towards eternity without him. Follow me and die or don't follow. That is, go to eternity without me. Don't go there. Embrace this, step into it and say yes. And as soon as you do, the person who says yes, okay, the, the, if you're just a little bit thoughtful in that, you realize right away, oh my goodness, I don't know how I could possibly do that, and I certainly haven't done that. Not well, not thoroughly. Two things here. First, remember the gospel. There isn't anybody who did this perfectly but Jesus. He's the only one who ever perfectly had total allegiance to God and took up his cross and followed perfectly. Only him. He did that for you to forgive you, to provide forgiveness for you. The person takes this seriously and says, yes, but I'm such a failure at this. I failed again. And I can say I'm going to do it today, but I have a sneaking suspicion by this evening I will have failed again. Remember the gospel. That's what it's for. But also, note verse 39. As I said last week, this is always, this is always God, and it's one of, one of the sweetest, best things about the God of the Bible, the God who is real. When he, when he serves up something hard, he also puts a dollop of honey on the plate and says, here, this is sweet. 
Verse 39. The supreme allegiance demand is so very hard. But hear this. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You find your life, you, you say, I'm going to hold, the word's about holding on to, grasping hold of something. I've located it and retained it. This, this life, this, this me, this self-direction, I found that, I've held on to it, I'm, going to, I'm not going to let go of it. Jesus says, you can't actually, like sand, it's going to run through your fingers. It's like trying to hold on to water. You can't. I think he's probably referring a little bit to here and now, the, the sense of life. In me. We all sense a little bit of a kind of an aimlessness in a self-centered life. There's some sort of emptiness there, but he's particularly talking because he's all this language about being worthy of me. He's particularly talking about the end. You will end life with no connection to me. You'll lose life. You'll perish. Refuse to die to self now and you will die forever. But I promise you, this is the second half of this, and this is sweet, it is so short and so beautiful. I promise you, there's a great offer of grace laid right in front of you. Believe this, Christian, hear this and believe this. It is how God always works to help us to follow him. He holds out something and says, and here's why you should. Not because you must, because I said so, but because... This is life. You give up your life, you will find it. I promise, for my sake, will find it. We think I'm going to give up my, my home, my family, my relationships, my wealth, my job, and Jesus says, I promise you, you'll find a hundredfold in this life and in the one to come eternal life. can't actually take up your cross, follow him, and end in misery. It's not possible. Because he promised you what you'll find along that way, what you'll find is communion with me, communion with my people, communion with my purpose, communion with the one who sent me. You'll find your life, what you're made for. You're not made to hold on to all of this. You're made for me. I'm going this way. Follow Christian, hear this. I, I know this is extremely familiar. I know you've heard this, but to live by faith is to hear the promises of God and say, yes, I'm going to bank on them. I'm going to hold on to them. I'm going to bring them right to the front of my, of my eyes when I, when I hear the hard challenge of die to self. I'm going to believe. I'm going to put right in front of me the promise, but that's my life. I'm going to say, I don't see it. I don't see it. I don't see it, but yes. And step into it. That's to live by faith. That's what you're called to. And it pays off big time. Believe his promise. I'm telling you the truth. Trust me. You can't actually find life here in the world. It's perishing and you will with it if you let, if, if you let yourself just believe the lies. But fight for faith. Fight to hear me and believe me that to follow me, it's a narrow way, it is a hard way. The gate is really tight. 
But on the other side of it is blessing forevermore and all along the way is fellowship with me. Come. There's no way to make the hard less hard. And I probably don't have the ability to make the sweet sweeter. But hold both, Christian, hold both these things up and say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And when you find out what it means, when you, you examine your, your angst or your blessings and, and pleasures, and you find out what it means, what it would mean for me to die to self, don't just say, huh, okay, I will. Say, where's the promise? I believe this, but help my unbelief, Lord. Where's the promise? I want that. Here's me. Give me life. He loves you and he came to save you. He is not going to take your life from you after he saved you. He's going to give you blessings forevermore. Trust him and follow. All surrendered. Supreme allegiance to Jesus is what he demands and what he promises actually brings you your true life. Hear that and believe it. And then here at the end then, third point, shorter. Be reminded once more of the valued place we occupy as Christ's disciples, as his ministers. So final observation. Very brief, very simple. Take heart, you are precious to God. Take heart, you are precious to God. It's from verses 40 to 42. This is kind of an odd section. But it's important to note, this is not a command to readers that they should receive people sent by God. Of course, you could get that if you were reading this. You could understand that kind of in reverse. Like, oh, that would be something good to do. God would reward that. But he's writing it to you about how when people receive you, his disciples. So the, the people who are doing the receiving, the others, they're kind of off to the side here. It's about him talking to you. And one of the things we can get from this is that some people will receive you. He said that already. And they go to the towns and villages and houses. Some people will receive them in, and they, they should go in there. Those, those folks will be out there. Not all of the world is as hostile as it possibly could be. He already said that. That's how God cares for us and provides for us in many ways. But there's something more here than just reminding us about that. This is a statement to us, to you, Christian, reminding you of how God sees you and values you. So look at this. And I, well, I think this is, this, is, this is brief, but while it's brief, I think it's also pretty encouraging. For me, as I kind of thought about this and thought about it and thought about it, it kind of brought a smile to my face as I kind of saw it. So hopefully that'll happen. Verse 40. Some will receive you in. They'll be friendly and open towards you. Not that they're all going to become Christians, but they'll be kind and gracious in some way or another. And when that happens, they're also receiving in me. They're receiving you because of me. After all, that's why they said they were there. I'm, I'm here as a messenger of Jesus announcing that the kingdom has come in Jesus. Remember, that's how he set this all up. So when they receive you in, they know why they're receiving you in. 
So they are in some way open to me in you. And if they're receiving in me, they're receiving in the God who sent me and who sent you. God the Father. So keep following us through. When God sees then a person welcomes you in because of Jesus, openness to God is always rewarded. Like it was with the prophets. First example here. And while there's some disagreement about this, I'm persuaded that he's talking about Old Testament prophets. Because at this point in time, Jesus and his audience, they still have Old Testament ears. There isn't a New Testament yet. The words that he speaks have an Old Testament definition in their minds. The Old Testament prophets, so people like the prophet Isaiah, for instance, and they knew, everybody knew, that if you welcome in Isaiah, you're welcoming in Yahweh's prophet. You're welcoming in Yahweh and his word. You're, you're open and receptive to what God has to say. And God will reward that. God will bless that in some way. Same for when people welcomed in righteous ones. And again, I think he means Old Testament righteous ones. So people who are what you might call the heroes of the faith. Not the prophet Isaiah, but maybe like King David, for instance. Or one of David's mighty men. Not a prophet, but still a big guy. Somebody important. Before David became king, he wandered around for many years and needed all kinds of assistance to sustain and protect him, and, and God saw that and honored it. Sometimes bless people's crops and whatnot. You, you, would, you give some sort of reward. And so what he's saying here is, like in the past, so too today, with you, my disciples. Now we're coming around to the point. We're not big names like Isaiah or David. Just very simple fishermen from Galilee, simple people from Salt Lake or Sandy, that we're just, we're just us. But you're right in line with the prophets and the heroes of the faith. You're one of my disciples. And like they represented Yahweh... They represented God and God's kingdom. So do you. Just the same. And when you show up and you bring me and my Father in heaven to somebody and they respond to you with just doing something so simple like giving a cup of cold water, an ordinary, very simple thing, I see that and I'll reward that too, just the same as I would have if you were Isaiah or David. What he's trying to emphasize here is that he's going to treat people in some way, some, some kind way, because of how they treated you. That's a statement about what he thinks of you. If I said, $100 reward to anyone who finds my lost cat, that tells you how I value the cat. And if I said, Truly I say to you, a $100 reward to anyone who does anything so simple as tell me where they last saw my lost dog. That tells you how much more I value the dog. You don't even have to find the dog. Just tell me where you last saw it. A common courtesy. You've had people walk down your street and say, hey, do you see my dog? It's so-and-so. 
No, I didn't. Yes, I did. And you're not expecting a reward for that. It's common courtesy. If you saw a dog running by, you tell them. The common courtesy of a, of a cup of water, I'll give them a reward for that. Not because of them, but because of how much I value you. Truly, I say to you, they do something so simple as give you a cup of, of cold water, nothing special. They're going to get rewarded for that because, little one, you carry my name. You are precious to me. I'm, I really, really want to defend you and uphold you and support you. So anything that they do kind for you, it's like they did it for Isaiah or David. Little old you. You bear my name. You wear my royal robes. You're the apple of my eye, precious to me. Anything they do to help you, I value that. Because I value you. Hear that. It's just a simple little point tacked on the end here. He calls you to something hard. Demanding allegiance in the midst of all kinds of conflict promises you that's where your life will be found, actually. And then at the very end says, and I really value you. You're important to me. He demands your allegiance and wants to communicate that you have his. He is loyal towards you. He stands for you. He values you. And he will never leave you nor forsake you. Let me pray. Father, we help the truths here that are hard to sink in well and rightly with us. We help the truths here that are precious and meant to be encouraging to come home to us and, and to uplift and uphold our hearts. We cause the parts that were confusing or hard to sit right and to be held in proper tension. Whatever is needed, Lord, will you do your work? Will you teach the right points, the big ones and the little ones, to each one of us in the places where we need them? Will you build your church and will you enable us to stand faithful in ministry wherever you've called us to whatever you've called us to do? The world all around us is to varying degrees hard. Will you shine more brightly than the world in our eyes? Will you walk with us and draw us to you? Thank you, Lord. We trust you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.